Last Sunday, we got as far as the first of six texts which were illuminating an understanding about the choice of Abraham to go down to Egypt when he faced famine. And so this Sunday, we will entitle our study Facing Famine and Fleeing, Part 2. And we'll begin with the sixth of the promised six texts. I'll simply remind you of the previous five that we've already looked into, and that's on last Sunday's teaching, Facing Famine and Fleeing, Part 1. We looked at the Exodus exigency, and the text for that is Exodus 13 and verse 17. We looked at threshold anxiety, Numbers 14, verses 1 through 4. We looked at regal regulations, Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 16. We looked at Isaiah's instructions in Isaiah chapter 31 and verse 1. And we looked at Zedekiah's zigzag as given to us from the prophet Ezekiel in the 17th chapter, verses 11 through 16. All of those texts have very strong words about the idea of going to Egypt for help in time of trouble. And while it may seem that entitling this study and the previous one relative to Abraham with the language facing famine and fleeing, that there are intonations, of course, and implications within that title that manifest an opinion that is not viewing Abraham's actions as being something that we should follow, that we should walk in those particular steps. And I do grant, of course, that that title does carry, as it were, an assessment in its choice. But I think that we are making the case, I hope, to your hearts, that it is indeed an accurate assessment. In fact, for those of us who face the ends of the ages and are called upon to make use of the Old Testament lives as a way by which the Holy Spirit can admonish us, especially in the context of a greater light and a greater understanding and by God's grace, a greater sensitivity to the mind and heart of God, then I do hope that this series of texts that we've already given you, coupled with that which we will give you now and the remainder of the study, will help all of our hearts to learn a lesson from the life of Abraham. I believe that if he were here to speak to us, he would agree with this assessment and would not be in any sense offended. The last text that I want to relay to you is from the prophet Jeremiah. You'll find it in the 42nd chapter. And I entitle this particular vignette of this issue, The Remnant Being Rattled and Running. Now this, contextually, is within the context of Nebuchadnezzar's battle and Nebuchadnezzar's victory over Jerusalem and the various peoples. And as you'll remember, there were deportations that took place. And of course, Babylon is now the regional power and Israel is under its um, domain. Well, within that context, after Zedekiah is carried away to Babylon, a man by the name of Gedaliah becomes 
effectively the governor, the stat, you know, set up by Nebuchadnezzar. Someone by the name of Ishmael plots against Gedaliah and kills Gedaliah. And he was pre-warned by a man by the name of Yohanan ben Karech, the son of Karech. And uh, we pick up the narrative within that context. They, that is to say, after Gedaliah was in fact murdered, assassinated by Ishmael, Johanan, who was himself a military leader, he and the small remnant that was yet in Israel, they appealed to Jeremiah, who, as you will remember, I trust, is positioned in Israel while Ezekiel is in Babylon and Daniel is in the Babylonian court. So even in times of difficulty, God has his servants well-placed to bring the word of the Lord to his people. And so they go to Jeremiah and they promise him that whatever um, the Lord says to Jeremiah, they will obey. And they ask that the Lord will be merciful to them. And so in the seventh verse of Jeremiah 42, we read, And at the end of ten days, after Jeremiah sought the Lord for ten days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Then he summoned Johanan, the son of Karech, and all the commanders of the forces, the military leaders who were with him, and all the people from the least to the greatest, and said unto them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea for mercy before him. If you will remain in this land within Israel, if you will remain in the territory that Abram originally entered into once he ultimately left Haran and came via Shechem into the warp and whoop and distance of the promised land. Jeremiah says, if you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I relent is the language of the ESV, which captures better the connotation of what is going on here. I relent, that is, I'm going to ease my judgments in deference to your pleas and prayers for mercy. I relent of the disaster that I did to you nationally. Listen to the language of verse 11. Do not fear. God does not say that for no reason. There is reason to fear. There are real issues that are impinging upon the lives of God's people. And the Lord says, do not fear the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hands. Now, he does not say, as this is setting itself before you, and indeed, as we'll see in the following verses, it doesn't say that God is going to remove Nebuchadnezzar from being the regional power. He just says that within that context, my sovereignty will prepare, as it were, a table for you in the middle of these circumstances, and I will be with you. Even though the circumstances haven't fundamentally changed in many readings of what the circumstances look like, I will be with you. Verse 12, I will grant you mercy. 
Isn't that wonderful? Whether or not Nebuchadnezzar will, whether or not the government will, never, whether or not various entities that hold positions of power will, God says in the 12th verse, I will grant you mercy and I will so influence Nebuchadnezzar's heart that he will have mercy on you and he will let you remain in your own land. But if you say, we will not remain in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God and saying, no, we will go down to the land of Egypt where we will not see war or hear the sound of the trumpet or how about this, be hungry for bread. One of the issues was how were they going to be fed? The very same issue that was perplexing the patriarch Abraham's heart. I'm not denying that Abraham was facing very real and severe circumstances, very trying situation, but nor are they. And this is the word of the Lord through Jeremiah to his people that have sought the Lord as to what they should do. We won't see war if we go down to Egypt. We won't hear the trumpet blast indicating that the battle has been initiated. We will not be hungry for bread. We will dwell there, implied, in relative safety. Then hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. This is the remnant. In some respects, one might argue those that are yet in the right place, feasibly yet being faithful to God. I know not all of them were, but they were asking the Lord for mercy. They did appeal to Yahweh and pray to their God. They're the remnant. And he says to the remnant that you have certain conditions that you have to pay attention to for it to go well with your soul. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you set your faces to enter Egypt and to go live there, then the sword that you fear shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. And the famine of which you are afraid shall follow close after you to Egypt, and there you shall die. All the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to live there shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. They shall have no remnant or survivor from the disaster that I will bring upon them. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and my wrath were poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. You shall become an execration a loathsome thing, a horror, a curse, a taunt. You shall see this place no more. The Lord has said to you, O remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. Know for a certainty that I have warned you this day. Now I submit to you whatever you think Abraham should have done. It could not be more clear what God is saying to the remnant when they are facing very real threats where they are presently situated, which happens to be 
within the promised land. It happens to be within the space of God's will in their life. That's what this stands for. And God says, do not run to Egypt, for it may not dawn on you, but when you seek to simply change your geographical location or just your situational external circumstances and think that everything will therefore improve, that is not always the case. He says, there can be war in Egypt like there is in Jerusalem. There can be difficulties in Canada or in Switzerland or in Luxembourg or in the middle of the Sahara Desert, for that matter. I mean, wherever you think you might go to get some kind of reprieve that isn't by steps of faith, brothers and sisters, there's no guarantee in these last days that that is the location of real safety. As a matter of fact, the safest place to be is right within the will of God, no matter what the external circumstances may tend to be. So that was the sixth of the six texts that I promised. But we want to then reflect back on Abraham and think about his actions. Because while I think these post-patriarchal texts that I have read, those we read last Sunday in that very strong word from Jeremiah that I just finished. Though all of those texts are univocal, they state very clearly God's people are not to run to Egypt. Yet it still remains for us, I think, to process the reality that it is Abraham as a matter of fact who initiates this impulse. When the journey got jittery, Abraham fled to Egypt. You know, it's interesting. The word jittery means extreme nervousness. And I just happened to look up the etymology of that particular word, and it comes from the Middle English word chittern, which means to twitter or chatter. And I couldn't bypass the opportunity to make a remark about that interesting correlation between what we're looking at, what the word jittery means, and that it comes from a word that means Twitter. And while I'm not here to make some big case about social media, though a case can be made, but I do just want to emphasize that in this age of soundbite phenomena, where the way that the dialogue takes place often within the culture and within our own hearts, As a matter of fact, stating that it is dialogue is saying too much. The point is, is it really isn't conversation. It isn't discussion. It isn't thought-out analysis. So much of it is via various little sound bites. And these sound bites can have the effect of sudden fear. They can be things that bite you just by hearing the sound of this particular statement or this particular issue or this particular concern. You know, we can die of a thousand Twitter pecks, brothers and sisters, where as, you know, generally speaking, you would be able to overcome a particular trial or situation that really isn't that threatening. But when everything is, you know, engaged in through, through these Twitter statements and these soundbite ways of thinking about life and you see a little headline or somebody says, you know, something about whatever and it it begins to hit your heart and you get the jitters, you know, you can get the jitters from the Twitters. 
And, and before you know it, you're making decisions and you're setting your sights in various directions that aren't the will of God. We need to seek the Lord. We need to take time to pray and be thoughtful about what our decisions are and not just react to Twitters. Well, what we see with Abraham, when you think about what the broader image of his journey would look like, especially if you viewed it on a map, Abram would be going ultimately out of Chaldee, passing through the Promised Land and into Egypt. So to sum up what Abraham has done, he goes out of Chaldee, which we'll call the general region of Babylon, because it is. The Chaldees are the ancient peoples that ultimately make up Babylon in Nebuchadnezzar's day. So Abram goes out of Chaldee, called by Almighty God by grace, out of Chaldee, through the Promised Land, and into Egypt. So I'm going to call that out of Babylon and into Egypt. That's what Abram's journey actually looks like. No one can dispute that. One might feel that that is an unfair analysis and it sort of isolates Abram's journey in a moment of time and tries to make an unfair case out of this particular consequence of the famine. But nonetheless, continue with me as we think this through, because I would say to you that in a reverse sort of way, is that not what Israel as a nation does, except that they go out of Egypt, pass through the Promised Land, and then wind up in Babylon. And for reasons that they never figure out, they never get right. It's a long story. It's not one that we can tell at length at this time. But ultimately, of course, they leave Egypt. They leave after 400 years of bondage in Egypt. And God brings them into the promised land. And we have the era of the judges and we have the era of the kings, and then we have the era of the divided kingdom. And in all of those various segments of Israel's history, there aren't very long periods where they're doing really well, where they're really listening to God, and they're really maturing. And if you sort of zoom out from the Old Testament and look at the trajectory of their history, if you pick it up from the Exodus, you could honestly say they go out of Egypt and into Babylon. Because they're only in Babylon because they never really benefited as a nation in all that was possible for them to grow into and to mature and to be established while they were in the promised land. And so they needed to stay there. And they needed to be trained within that context. And what I'm just simply pointing out to you right now is that in a very real way, a fact, a dramatically real way, if you're watching Abraham's journey, he is just passing through. He's just passing through the promised land. I know it's not his intention, but that's the admonition to our hearts. It's not the intention of the Christian believer to just pass through church, just pass through the Bible, just pass through a prayer time, and then go right back to 
something very similar to what you came out of. Go right back into actions and ways of living that are not in faith and not in accordance to the word of God. But that's the admonition, dear brothers and sisters, to our hearts that we aren't those who are pilgrims, perhaps, but we're just passing through. Remember the language of Paul to the Galatian churches. He said, are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? Isn't that interesting? He's speaking to these churches that had been established on his first missionary journey, I hold to the Southern Galatian perspective review of the letter to the Galatians. And so Paul had established these churches in the New Testament teaching and concepts and so on. And yet it was not very long where they were right back into some of the ideas of Judaism, into some of the affiliations that the old way of thinking about religion had been brought to their hearts. He says, you began in the spirit. Are you really going to be made perfect in the flesh? What I want to give you, first of all here, is three ideas that describe why it was that Abraham effectively just passes through the promised land. The first is that Abraham fails to walk by the Spirit. That may seem like a tall order for Abraham at this time, and I grant that it is. But if I'm not mistaken, I'm not preaching to Abraham. I'm preaching to my brothers and sisters in Christ in 2021, and you have the benefit of the work of the Lord Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And these are the admonitions that we need to hear. Whether or not you think Abram should have had these awarenesses, that's not my argument. I'm saying we're learning from watching his life that Abraham failed to walk in the Spirit. And I'm going to make that case. Remember Galatians chapter 3 and verse 3 where Paul says to these churches, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now going to be made perfect in the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? How does this apply to Abram? I think it applies in this way, and then I'm going to give you the text to support it. The question could be asked to Abram, Have you traveled so far now to move down to Egypt and you failed in the interim to seek your God and to ask what his will is for you in this particular trial? You just assume that you should go down to Egypt? You traveled some 500 to 600 miles ultimately to get here. You went through so many changes and so many statements of commitment, we hope, that entail your commitment to Christ. Have you gone through all of this in vain to just pass through the promised land in time of trial and go right down to Egypt into the ways of the world and to find your resource there? As opposed to continuing the walk in the Spirit? Are you so foolish? Do you really think that God has brought you into fellowship and into a relationship with Him, that now you're going to complete this walk through the means and the ways of the flesh? The reason why I make that case is because in Genesis chapter 12, in verse 6, 
we read, And Abram passed through the land onto the place of Shechem, onto the plain of Morah. And the Canaanite was then in the land. Verse 7, And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said unto him, Unto thy seed I will give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord, who appeared unto him. What are we reading here? Abraham is now in the land that he had walked to by faith. You recall with me, he didn't know where he was going. He did exercise faith and he entered into a relationship with this God that reveals himself to him in Ur of Chaldee. He leaves Haran. He walks again many, many miles. It's a difficult journey. He gets in the promised land and what occurs? He receives a word from the Lord, brothers and sisters. He receives a more intimate theophany than he had ever had before in his life. The Lord meets him within now the promised land and effectively says, you're here, you're in the right place. I've been wooing you, I've been calling you to myself and now you're in the right place and I am confirming this to you and I am telling you that I am going to give you this particular land. This, dear friends, is the leading of the Spirit. This is akin to the Holy Spirit guiding us into all truth. And He guides us into all truth when we enter into a relationship with God and we open our Bibles and there's some sense in which God says, okay, you're in the right place. Or you come to a Bible-believing, Spirit-filled New Testament church and you hear the Word of the Lord being preached and there's a confirmation to your heart that you're in the right place. But you have to understand there's more to that, that you have to recognize that the Spirit is guiding you into truth because there are things yet to come that this truth is to be applied within. The Bible tells us if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. I don't see Abraham, though he makes an altar. That, I understand, is an impulse uh, to... God speaking to his heart and it would be akin to the impulses that we have. Maybe even hearing this message, there's an impulse within your heart to say, I feel like the Lord is talking to me. I, I feel like there's something going on here that, that the Lord is speaking to my heart in a special way. But dear brothers and sisters, we need more than what Abraham did. He built an altar there, but we don't see when he finds himself a little later down in the Negev facing famine, there is no language that says he seeks the God that appeared to him in Shechem and asks this God, what is your will? You say, well, how do you know he didn't? Well, brothers and sisters, I just gave you multiple texts and I could give you a whole lot more in which God says over and over again, do not go to Egypt in fear underscore in fear. I will ultimately get to a modification of that remark when we look into the life of Mary and Joseph, but I don't want to get ahead of what we're talking about here. Please hear what I'm saying. There is one message from God. Do not run to Egypt in fear. And Jeremiah spoke to Yohanan and the remnant 
after they sought the Lord. You can read the entire text there in Jeremiah 42. But they had sought the Lord about what to do. And the word of the Lord that came back said, Do not go to Egypt. No, for certain I have warned you this day. I'm suggesting to you that one of the reasons why Abram effectively went out of Babylon, just passed through the promised land, and then wound up in Egypt, is because he failed to walk in the Spirit. Dear brothers and sisters, we need to let the Holy Spirit guide us into all truth. Coming to church, opening your Bible, being in prayer meetings, all those sorts of things, if we're not allowing the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth, the truths that we will need when we face things to come, then we will be without the word of the Lord when we make many decisions about life. And you're going to have Jeremiah's and you're going to have Isaiah's and you're going to have Ezekiel's that disagree with you. But you're going to probably feel like you need to drag them down to Egypt with you like they did to Jeremiah. I'm saying the Lord appeared to Jeremiah and gave him a word. And Jeremiah failed, brothers and sisters, to seek that same God that gave him a more intimate theophany. That was the encouragement to his heart. I am here in this land. If you face a trial, ask of God who giveth to all men wisdom and upbraideth not. And that will be given to you. You are to trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. If you walk in the Spirit, Paul tells us in Galatians 5 and verse 16, you won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And the lusts of the flesh, dear brothers and sisters, is often just a desire for security, a desire to be free from war, to be free from pressures, to be free from being unliked and those sorts of things. We have to walk in the Spirit in order for us to stay where God wants us to be. Let's use a comparison by which to sort of continue to think about this. In Mark's Gospel, in the first chapter, we read about Jesus. Jesus, too, has a journey. He goes from Nazareth of Galilee down to the Jordan. Now, depending on where you place the spot of Jesus' baptism, whether in Beth Abraor or Bethany beyond Jordan, we won't get into that discussion, but it's, you know, some 20 miles or so, give or take, depending on, again, where that particular location is. But my point is simply this. Jesus travels from the comfort of his own home in Nazareth, and he goes to the Jordan River. This is verse 9 of Mark chapter 1, and he's baptized of John in the Jordan River. And what happens when Jesus obediently comes to this location that God is calling him to, he gets a more intimate theophany, very much like Abraham received. When Abraham made his journey and came to Shechem, we read in verse 10, And straightway coming up out of the water, Jesus saw the heavens open, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven, saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. A voice from heaven spoke to Jesus in the Jordan River and said, 
Effectively, you're in the right place. You're my son. I am here. I am with you. But the very next verse, verse 12 says, And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the desert, and he was there in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted of the devil with the wild beast. And it was such a difficult time that ultimately the angels needed to minister to him. And within that context, he was very, very hungry. But he never left the wilderness. And what kept him there? He was listening to the leading of the Spirit, brothers and sisters. There is nothing that is by definition wrong with going and getting yourself some food when you need to eat. But in this particular case, it was God's will for Jesus who had just received a voice from heaven. It was God's will for Jesus to listen to the Spirit as he continued to lead his life. I mean, who would think that when the heavens open and the Spirit descends as if by in the form of a dove and a voice speaks and says, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Who would think that the next experience would be 40 days in a desert in very difficult circumstances where no one is ministering to you and you're all alone it's very hard to survive? Who would make those two connections that those things could be related? I'll tell you who, the Spirit of God and the one who's listening to the Holy Spirit. I'm not making light of what Abraham's experience was, but my question is, the voice that spoke to him in Shechem, did that voice tell him to go down to Egypt? That's the question before us, and I'm suggesting to you that he did not continue to walk in the Spirit. He began in the Spirit. He took many steps that were in keeping with the walk of the Spirit, but then a trial confronted his life. And he tried to perfect his walk, you know, continue his walk in the flesh. Secondly, another principle that I think that Abraham failed to apply can be described in this way. He allowed himself to be a good pilgrim in the wrong place. You've heard the phrase before, what is a good man like you doing in a place like this? I believe that applies to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, in the 10th verse, we read the following. And there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down. The Hebrew word is yahrad. It means to descend or can mean to descend like water. He went down into Egypt to sojourn. The Hebrew verb there is ger. And the Septuagint translates that Hebrew verb with the Greek verb paroikeo, paroikeo, because there was a famine in the land. He goes down to Egypt and sojourns in Egypt. What I find interesting about that is he's doing the right thing in the wrong place. He is still understanding himself to be a pilgrim and a sojourner, paroikeo, but he's in the wrong place. You might remember that in 1 Peter chapter 2, we've given this to you in a previous study, Peter says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers. That's the exact same term that is used in a verbal form 
in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 10 in the Septuagint. So just as we're called to be paroikus, we're called to be strangers and pilgrims, Abram was indeed just going down to Egypt just to sojourn there. But again, he had something of the identity of a Christian, but he was in the wrong place. And that's very possible, dear brothers and sisters. I just want to emphasize that to our hearts. Again, this, I think, also is a consequence of not walking in the Spirit. Perhaps you remember with me that in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, there is this famous scene where Christian and faithful are in the middle of Vanity Fair. Now, in their case, the road, as it were, to the celestial city goes right through that location. And I don't read within Bunyan's text that they were supposed to take some alternate route, but they were warned by evangelists to be very careful. And within that context, of course, faithful becomes a martyr. But what I'm trying to say is, if they were to become comfortable within Vanity Fair, it doesn't mean necessarily that they disavow their entire Christian identity. But the question would become, what is a good Christian like you doing in a place like this? And that kind of question is a very relevant one. One would ask Jehoshaphat, for example. Jehoshaphat, what are you doing in an alliance with Ahab? David, what are you doing with Uriah's wife? Josiah, what are you doing on the battlefield of Megiddo? And the list can go on. David, what are you doing numbering the tribes of Israel? Solomon, what are you doing with, well, I lost count who he's with on this particular occasion. Peter, what are you doing with your boats? Peter, what are you doing separating from the Gentiles at table and going only to the Jews in Galatians chapter 2. It may be that you are a Christian. I'm not here to take that away from you. Maybe you do have a genuine saving faith in Christ. I'll grant that you're gifted with physical beauty. The question for this particular Christian young lady who takes her beauty and puts it on display in some sort of pageant is... What are you doing in a place like this? Are you being led of the Spirit? Are you, have you just passed through the Word of God and you're down in Egypt displaying your, you know, your charms in Egypt? What are you doing here? It may be that you are a very dedicated athlete and you are one who is very committed to whatever you put your mind to. And so you have excelled in this particular sport. Let's say it's boxing or it's some other form of martial art and you're at the pinnacle of this particular sport and after you finish your last bout and you're asked to give your remarks you say first and foremost I just want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ I would add a third idea to Abraham's decisions first of all he fails to walk by the Spirit second of all He's a good pilgrim in the wrong place. Thirdly, he is a too free radical. What is a radical? Well, in its adjectival form, radical means arising 
from or going to a root or source. Etymologically, it comes from the Latin radic. Interestingly, I happen to know that the Greek for root is kriza. It's similar to the Latin. I don't know if there's a history connection, historical language connection between the two. I just happen to know it sounds similar. The basic sense of the word in all meanings is, quote, pertaining or relating to a root or roots. Hence, thoroughgoing, extreme. So in other words, when you hear the word radical, that someone is a radical, it means that they want to go right to the very root of some issue and they want to transform it completely, thoroughly. That's why we use that idea of a radical. When we think about Abram's life, we are told in verse 9 of chapter 12 that Abraham journeyed, and the Hebrew word is nasah. Abraham was uprooted from, again, Haran. He travels through the promised land, and he continues to journey wherever God leads him. And so the Christian life I'm suggesting through these thoughts is indeed a life that can be described as being radical. I use that phrase in part because in certain contexts, it's kind of a popular way of expressing the Christian life. You know, become a radical Christian. And I'm all for that if you've got the right, you know, set of ideas and set of values that are associated with that. And what I'm saying is it is true that Abraham had to be uprooted. He had to be loosened from the earth and the place he was planted in. And he was, you know, he was to be led of the Lord and he was to make a thorough, complete change of his life and to be free in that respect. All of that is very, very important, brothers and sisters. When you become a Christian, you should be uprooted from all of your previous commitments. That is to say, anything that would be keeping you from following the Lord, you got to let the Lord just dig you right out of that ground like the husbandman that he is and free you up so you can follow on to know the Lord. But you don't want to become a too free radical. And you get that way by failing to see that the Lord wants to plant you into his ground and into his purposes. And he wants you to stay there and he wants those roots to go deep and it will occur in time of trial and difficulty and testing and so on and so forth. And you can't just become a free radical is the point that I'm making because that is not biologically healthy as you may know. The true definition of a free radical as it relates to a biological concern is something that would likely be cancerous and likely destroy you. And so what I'm trying to say is Abraham was a too free radical. He was uprooted and praised the Lord for that, but he failed to allow himself to be planted. If you take your old man and you leave Haran and you pass right through the promised land and then plant yourself in Egypt, then you might be a pilgrim, but you're a pilgrim with a problem because you're just passing through the land. When I think of that phrase, I know this is not exactly seasonal, but it reminds me of the old 
song, dashing through the snow in a one-horse open sleigh, o'er the hills we go, laughing all the way. And if you'll allow it, I have a, just a short rendition of that idea that I call Jingle Church. And it sounds like this, dashing through the word in a one-thought trite sorbet. Out the door we go, laughing all the way. Jingle church, jingle church, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to run God's temple our own way. That's too free radicalism. It's the kind of thing that looks like we're so free that all we need to do is just come to church, get a little sermonette, pass right through the promised land, pass right through God's word with nary that much attention on exactly what God is speaking to your life. And of course, out the door you go. You know, this idea of a one thought trite sorbet, I realize I could have worked that language a little differently, but I purposely chose not to. Because first of all, it fits nicely with, with a one horse open sleigh, but it's the idea that church and the experience of the sermon. And I know this isn't true in every setting and I hope it isn't ever true here and isn't true in the experience of whoever may be listening to these teachings. But what I'm saying is, is too often it can be the case that you go to the house of God to just have a religious cleansing of your palate, that you might be going right back and eating off the world's menu tomorrow and in many cases you're ordering the stuff that the world would want you to be chewing on and eating but you got to have a little sorbet you got to have a little sunday when you come to church just to sort of cleanse your palate and make you feel a little bit better about yourself you know but it better not be too long and it better not be too serious and it better not be too exacting because this is the jingle church after all and it's jingle all the way, and it's a lot of fun to do God's church our own way. And out the door we go, laughing all the way. I'm not suggesting that Abraham was laughing when he made his journey down to Egypt, but he was passing through the promised land. He was dashing too quickly without asking the Lord, what is the word of the Lord for this particular situation? You see, he needed to be planted by the Lord. That's what Psalm 1 and verse 3 speaks of. That if you are in the word day and night and you're listening to the counsel of the Lord, he's going to make you a planting of the Lord. He's going to plant you in that word. And there are many texts that speak of this idea. Allow me to give you a few. For example, in Colossians chapter 1, in verse 12, there we read, and in this case, I'm going to read from the New King James Version. There we read that we are to give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, I hope you will see the correlation that that idea offers us with Abraham's experience. Amen? I mean, Abraham was qualified by God into an inheritance that had been promised to him. And we too are called into an inheritance 
By grace, we're qualified to enter into this inheritance. But verse 13 says, he has delivered us out of the power of darkness. Well, praise the Lord. That's like being delivered out of either Ur of Chaldee or out of Haran. God has delivered us out of the world. He's delivered us out of Egypt. We've been delivered out of the power of darkness. We've been, con- we've been conveyed. We've been led of the Spirit you know, to a church. You never were going to go to church in your life, but hey, look where you are. You're in church. You didn't even pay attention to the Bible before, but look where you are. You're, you know, reading the Bible. You never would take the time to go to a prayer meeting or to evangelize on the streets or whatever, but look at that's what you're doing. So praise the Lord that you've been conveyed into this experience But the Bible goes on to say in the 23rd verse of Colossians chapter 1, all of this that has begun and has brought you into the kingdom of God's Son, as verse 13 speaks of, I didn't finish that part, but what I'm saying is the Lord has brought you into the space of the promised land, into his word. The Bible says in verse 23, you need to continue in the faith, grounded and settled. I don't think that Abraham was grounded and settled when he fled down to Egypt. Now you say, well, you know, how could he have figured that all out? That's not my point. I'm talking to us. And you don't know that he couldn't have, by the way. We have so much to look at in this direction of thought. And we will continue to do this in this study and in subsequent studies, uh, dear brothers and sisters. We're not going to dash through this text. You know what I'm saying? Um, Because we're not the jingle church. You know, we're here to let the Holy Spirit transform our lives. And, And what I'm saying is, as we look into this picture... In some degree of fullness, I think it'll be utterly evident to you that not only are these principles available to us, but as a matter of fact, there are very vivid ways by which we can see that what Abram did was wrong and God identifies it as wrong. And as a matter of fact, I might state here that the whole purpose of incorporating this feature of Abraham's life into these studies is so that when we see how things were done differently with Joseph and what that entire, what that entire story entails, you will then appreciate the richness of that story and see within it God absolutely has a message to the chosen family, which retroactively goes all the way back to Abraham, as a matter of fact, and says, you shouldn't have done that, Dad. May it not be the case, dear brothers and sisters, for ourselves that when we are examined retroactively, when our lives are looked at, at some point, perhaps after all this is said and done, and then our lives are examined in the light of God's truth and perfect will, it be said of us, you didn't seek the leading of the Spirit in that decision. You allowed yourself to mingle and be with the world and go to all the locations of the world, to the psychiatrist, to the medical industry, to the military, to the government agencies. You just went right to the world for all of your resources. And did I lead you there? The Lord may be asking That kind of question might not seem relevant right now, and I suppose it didn't seem so relevant to 
Abram when he made his way down to Egypt. But I think we need to stay with this story because whether or not it seemed relevant to him, you will see with me, he immediately got himself into a series of compromises that were very threatening to the whole project that God had initiated in his life. Allow me to give you a few other texts about being rooted so you will appreciate with me how necessary this is. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 17, we read, Christ is to dwell in our hearts by faith, and we are to be rooted and grounded in that love. The implications of texts like these may be a bit deeper than first touches the heart. Because if you're seeing only in the language that Paul gives an emphasis on speaking about the grace of God and saying that you believe that salvation is by grace through faith and it's not anything other than that, with which I 100% agree, but this grace that uh, Paul embraces and is teaching is a genuine power, a transforming power. It is a work of the Holy Spirit that involves rooting and grounding us within the appreciation and the knowledge of that grace, you see. In other words, I think it's an open question whether or not you really have come into contact with the grace of God that brings salvation. If you don't stay rooted and grounded in the love of God in time of trial, and you appreciate that grace in this sort of way where you say, I'm not going to deny or doubt the love of God for me in this circumstance. It may feel difficult. It may remind me of things I went through before I was ever a Christian, but now I belong to Jesus. Now I belong to God Almighty. And I am rooted and grounded in that love. And I'm going to stay right there in that love and seek the Lord about what am I to do and believe that he's going to meet my need. Why couldn't Abram stay right in the promised land and say, the God that met me in Shechem and revealed his love to me, not just there, but in Haran and in Ur of the Chaldee, the God has been so merciful to me and brought me on this journey all the way through these desert type regions and put me in the promised land. Now that I face famine, why should that separate me from the love of God? Why don't I just be grounded in this love that is a part of the grace that is in my heart, brothers and sisters? Stay true is all I'm saying to the grace that you claim is at the core of your salvation. That grace of God is to teach you to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. It's supposed to teach you, in other words, believer, to be rooted and grounded in the whole counsel of God and for you to become a planting of the Lord that shows the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that doesn't look like any Anything other than the world when in time of trial you join the trek of all those who do what everybody says is common sense and you just run down to Egypt in order to get your bread. Is it not the case that in the parable of the sower that these ideas are made through the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Matthew 13, verse 20, here again in the New King James Version. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. And when a famine comes, in spite of the fact that he came into the promised land with joy and Almighty God met him in Shechem and he built an altar and he was so blessed as you would be if you got a special theophany from the Holy God that had revealed himself to your heart. But in time of famine, in time of tribulation, in time of persecution, because of the word that you're committed to, immediately he stumbles and he rolls right down into Egypt. Well, this is the teaching of the Lord Jesus. And he says it's because you don't have a root. You're a too free radical. You claim that you're a thoroughly different person. You claim that you believe in radical Christianity. You understanding what I'm saying? You know that you believe that just God's done everything in your life. Well, I hope he has. And I hope that you're a new creation. All things have passed away. Old things have passed away and all things are new. Here's the question. Are you rooted in the word? Are you rooted in faith? Are you rooted in the love of God? Do you stay put in time of trial? Or should we say of you, as Paul said to the Galatians, you did run well. Who did hinder you that now you're not being led of the Spirit into all truth? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? Well, dear brothers and sisters, I think I would bring this study this afternoon to a close by showing in the life of Abraham what this too free radicalism can look like. I'm saying that Abram was uprooted from his previous commitments, and that was absolutely necessary for him to walk with God, right? The Lord said, leave, leave, leave. Let me uproot you. I got to loosen you from your previous life. You understand what I'm trying to say? But, but that's so that the Lord can plant you into his word and into his family and into his calling and into the new understanding of his life and his life and his provisions. If you're too free, then it isn't a proper manifestation of Christian radicalism. In Abram's life, it looks like this, continuing on in Genesis 12, verse 11. And it came to pass when he became near, when he was near to Egypt, the closer he got to Egypt, the looser his commitments to God and his moral compass began to shiver and quake. And Oh, he knew where he was going. I have to go to Egypt. I have to go to the world. I have to go to this particular worldly resource. That you know you have to go to. But you'll notice that the compass of his morality begins to quiver and shake. And it's kind of like an indication that you know, you're not listening to the Lord. That's why that needle is shaking all around and, and you're prepared to lie a little bit and you're prepared to stretch the truth a little bit and you're prepared to compromise your morality a little bit as you're running down to Egypt. You'll sign this, you'll say this, you'll do that as a consequence of the fears that you're working with. And it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt that he said to his wife, let me betray you. 
Oh, no, that's not what he said. He said to his wife, Behold now, I know that you are a fair woman to look upon. Therefore. Now, the sensible thing to do is, I was traveling down here to Egypt, and it just, it just occurred to me, you're a beautiful woman, and you could be taken into a harem, and therefore, we're going to turn around, and we're going to trust the Lord, and we're going to go back to the promised land, and if we have to go all the way back up to Shechem, we'll go up to Shechem, and we'll get on our knees before that altar, and we'll say, Lord, that spoke to me here in Shechem, hear me now, Lord, because I don't want to... I don't want to bring my wife into any sort of jeopardy. But that's not what he did. He said, therefore, it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee that they shall say, this is his wife and they will kill me, but they will save you alive. Therefore, let's, let's pray about this. But we're not praying to God. He's just praying, I'm going to say, really in the flesh. And I know that's not even a literal prayer. I get it, but I'm wanting you to see the language Say, I pray thee, that you're my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of you. Not because of God, because of you. I'm going to pray to you, Sarah, to help me get through this. And it came to pass that when Abram was coming to Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house long enough so that, in verse 16, he could entreat Abraham very well for her sake and gave Abraham sheep and oxen and male mules and manservants and maidservants, one of whom was likely Hagar, and female mules and camels? Did Pharaoh give all of that to Abram in the next half hour after he met Sarah and said, oh, you're beautiful. Just come here and take a seat. Let me just appreciate your beauty aesthetically. Perhaps we can get a watercolor just for memory's sake, because I'm sure you won't be here for very long, Lord willing. He took Sarah into his house he treated Abram well because of her and gave Abram an awful lot of things. What do you think happened to Sarah? Verse 17, after all that occurred, God is faithful. He does help his people. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said to, we'll say the word Christian here, I know it's anachronistic, but he said to the Christian, the world says to the Christian, the governmental authority says to the Christian, what is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why did you stretch the truth? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I might have taken her to be more than just in the harem. I might have taken her to be my wife. Now, therefore, behold your wife, take her and get away, go away. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So if we're learning from the example of Abram, then the conclusion would be, when the going gets tough, it's time to flee to Egypt, prostitute your wife, tell half-truths, 
plague the unbelievers, profit off your privilege, and so, quote unquote, bless the nations that they send you away. Abram was called by God to be a blessing to all the nations. How is God going to get Abram out of this situation? He has to plague the nation of Egypt. It's just amazing because that's a little premature. It's not quite time for all these plagues. This isn't the Pharaoh that is treating them so awfully, but he's getting the treatment like sometimes the world does. God sometimes breaks off relationships that his people are within when, again, they're a good Christian in the wrong place. You're in a relationship with an unregenerate girl or boy, and I'm not saying the Lord kills them or whatever, but I'm just saying whether you like it or not, sometimes God will enter into those relationships and will break those things down in his mercy and in his, you know, in his sovereignty. He does do this, brothers and sisters. These are serious considerations, brothers and sisters. Since Abram isn't walking with God and God's not going to give up on him, and that is God's grace, but don't take these things frivolously. God plagues a man who you know, he's not saved, I understand that, but he's not, he, he should be receiving a good witness and testimony, not being put in situations where he's going to come against your family and come against your life and then himself get plagued when you could have been witnessing to him, but you run down in your fears and in your ways instead of staying in the word of God. And then he winds up saying to Abram, does he not? This is how blessed we were by your presence. Get out of Egypt, go. You're causing us way too many troubles, plagues. Thanks, but no thanks. We don't need your Christian testimony. And here's a question for you. Who says the famine's over? Nobody said the famine's over. Pharaoh just said, get out. And I guess he's going to have to trust the Lord now, isn't he? So why can't you just trust the Lord from the start, brothers and sisters? What is going to happen at some point when... The churches and the Christians are so wedded to the world's resources. Let's take medical science. They're so wedded to medical science that God has to plague that industry, so to speak, with such evil intentions and such low moral standards that effectively it says to the Christian person, you've got to get out from all association with this or it's going to destroy everybody. Well, then I guess you're going to have to trust Jesus. Well, maybe you could have trusted Jesus all along. You know, I just want to finish with reminding you of what Jesus says will happen in the last days. He says that times will get difficult. As a matter of fact, he does say that there will be famines. But I'm speaking more broadly. He says that in the last days, where you live, both physically and even spiritually, is going to be difficult. And within the context of that difficulty, he says... Christians will experience being delivered up to the authorities and afflicted, and they will kill you, and you'll be hated of all nations for my name's sake, and many will stumble, and they will betray one another, and they will hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and will deceive many. And because all of this iniquity and confusion and perplexity and plethora of lies are going around, the love of the majority is going to wax cold in the context of this lawlessness. Jesus says, given the pressures that will become the new experience of those 
who see themselves as being in the promised land, being in the churches, being in the word of God. You understand what I'm saying? Being in this Christian walk. All of a sudden now, like with Abraham, a new set of pressures come that are Goliath in nature. This is a famine that is surrounding you in a relatively arid, dry territory. This is serious. How's the family going to survive? You understand what I'm saying? And maybe people are beginning to run out of food and all the rest of it. And what does Abraham do? In that context, he betrays his wife. He brings her down and says, tell a little lie for me and allow yourself to be brought into Pharaoh's concubinage and my life will be spared. I mean, that's what you're looking at here. That's what you're looking at, asking your wife to do this or asking your pastor to do that or telling your parishioners, why don't we all just do this? And I mean, this is betrayal. This is what you start to see in the Christian community. You know, I love Franklin Graham and I respect much that he stands for. But when he said about a week and a half ago regarding the vaccines in an article that I have here right in front of me entitled Franklin Graham colon Jesus would have taken the COVID-19 vaccine and he makes the remark and they're quoting him as far as I know he makes the remark in this way I think if there were vaccines available in the time of Christ Jesus would have made reference to them and used them. So Jesus would have taken a vaccine. He goes on to say that pastors should not tell their parishioners not to take the vaccine, that that would be problematic. Well, let me get this straight so far. What does this say about your Christology? That Jesus would have taken the vaccine. The sinless son of God now has to take a vaccine. Does that make any sense whatsoever? That has no theological sense to it, but it doesn't matter because this isn't being spoken in faith. Unfortunately, this is being spoken in fear. I'm saying, and I don't mean to be harsh, but I'm using Abraham and I love Franklin Graham, but I'm going to, he's the one that went on record saying it, and I'm not here trying to set him straight. I'm just here to use this as as a current example. I'm saying This is the kind of confusion that Abraham was working with when he goes down to Egypt and he starts spinning all these ideas about Sarah. Now you go down there and you tell him that you're my sister and we're going to sell it that way to him. And I know that your life is going to be jeopardized, but I'm afraid we got to do something. I don't want to die here. So why would you come up with an idea that includes the thought that Jesus would have taken the vaccine when you should know Christologically, if you're on a, on a calmer day, you know, if nothing else, Jesus doesn't need it. You would have at least had the sense to say that he would say, I don't need it, but I recommend you take it. But that's not what he said, because this isn't being spoken through calm, thoughtful, non-Twitter jitters. This is the worry that you're going to be deplatformed and social media is going to come after you and, and Twitter you to death. You're going to die by a thousand pecks. And I understand that's a very real concern. But like Jesus said, in such context, you start to betray each other. Now, I'm not going to say that Franklin Graham has betrayed me because I still love him as a brother. But I'm saying that is injudicious at best to be a well-known political figure and to essentially say, Jesus would have taken the vaccine. Pastors, you shouldn't tell your parishioners not to. Even that isn't even very 
sensible, by which I mean what pastor is telling their parishioner not to take the vaccine? Well, there may be some somewhere, but there are relatively few pastors that are mature that are telling their parishioners, don't take the vaccine. We forbid you to take it. If you take it, you got to get out of this church or whatever. That's not what pastors like myself are doing. They are dealing in truth. They are calmly assessing the situation and looking to the Lord and saying, Lord, what should we do in this situation? And then bringing truth and not lies to those that hear them. That doesn't equal we're telling you not to take the vaccine. And if I shouldn't tell you such things, then aren't you, dear brother Graham, telling us to take it with such language as you're using? And yet, remarkably, in the same interview, and by the way, I saw video clippage of this interview, so I know it's not being misquoted. In the same interview, Graham goes on to say, and I quote, I would be concerned with something that is a vaccine, with something we used fetal cells from a murdered child, you know, aborted cells from the abortion industry. But Moderna and Pfizer, two of the biggest vaccine suppliers, We've been told from the scientists, excuse me, we've been told from the scientists the way they produced that vaccine, these things were not used. Well, first of all, I don't know where to start here. First of all, so you believe the word of Moderna and Pfizer. You asked them if they used aborted fetal cells. They told you we didn't, and that settles it for you. It's available for me to really dig into this thing. But to take the word of an industry built on the love of filthy lucre and to be a public figure that certainly has some experience in the world and to assume that these individuals would not lie to you when if you would take the time to read the literature and acquaint yourself with the concerns that some godly men and women do have, you would see there is a documented long story of these men lying. I relayed to some of you recently that the man who invented the PCR test, a man by the name of Kerry Mullis, is on video footage saying prior to this COVID-19 hysteria, saying that a certain Anthony Fauci would look you right in the face and lie to you. Those are his words. That sort of thing has happened in human history. So I would argue that that kind of argument, that isn't based on sensible, calm reflection. That strikes me as Running down to Egypt, you're a little afraid about all of this and what it might mean and so on. But beyond that, I just want to make this last observation. If the vaccines were manufactured using fetal cell lines, let's leave out the possibility of animal cell lines with retroviruses, but we won't get into that because you're not asking for that kind of conversation. You're just telling me as a pastor, I shouldn't... I shouldn't tell people what Jesus would do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I shouldn't tell people that you should be thinking about whether or not these vaccines are ethical and from the heart of God, you know? My point is that you're saying if these vaccines were made with cell lines from aborted babies, then you would tell others not to take it. 
That's what he's saying. So in other words, there are conditions and circumstances within which you would. I, I think he's saying here, I wouldn't only suggest it. I would tell you it's not the Lord's will for you to use a product that has been manufactured from the murder of babies. So do you see that this doesn't even add up? This is confusion. How can you say that pastors shouldn't be influencing their parishioners in any way to not take the vaccine when you just said, well, if it was made from fetal cell lines, is that the only thing that you could be concerned about? Do you get to declare what issues are concerning and what issues aren't? In other words, you yourself said there'd be conditions where I would tell people not to take it. Okay, so maybe I have some conditions where I would advise before you run down to Egypt, you should stay in the promised land, pray to Almighty God, make an altar like in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, and ask the Lord to show you what is His good and acceptable and perfect will. Well, I'm just wanting to make it clear that we are to be followers of Abraham or Franklin Graham or myself or anyone else for that matter, including Paul, only to the extent that they follow Christ.